Standard Version Bible rather than the NIV found in the pew. So please follow along on the screen as I read Luke chapter 16, 1 through 9. The parable of the dishonest manager. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Thanks, Libby. My name is Lloyd Biddle. I'm one of the associate pastors here at High Point Church. It's my honor to um, introduce this morning's speaker, but before I do, I want to remind you that next week we'll be returning back to our series in 1 Samuel, and I'd like to give you an assignment if you're going to come back. I want you to, to work on your scripture memorization, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 2, uh, 2b through 4. So work on that next week, and Manohar James will be back uh, to help lead us with that. This morning we've got uh, Tom Lynn, who is the president and CEO of InterVarsity. Now I'm going to formally um, introduce him because I know for many of you, you haven't been introduced much to Tom's um, ministry. For some of you, you'll be a little bit more familiar, but not in his, probably not in his current role. InterVarsity has currently has 1,730 staff working with more than 1,000 chapters on 667 campuses. In the last year, InterVarsity staff led 4,000 people to Christ double the number they did 10 years prior. So they're growing and becoming vibrant. Uh, several of our members and attenders are InterVarsity staff. If you are InterVarsity staff member, won't you please stand at this time so we can recognize you. InterVarsity staff, I see one there, a couple there. Won't you give these folks a round of applause? Tom says this, uh, the, the turning point in my college experience came when I found a community of people who were committed to following Jesus together. The InterVarsity chapter on my campus. That community gave me hope for my college years and my passion for God and his mission grew. My goal as InterVarsity's president is to create deep opportunities like that for more students on more campuses across the country. Tom is the son of Taiwanese immigrants and he's the first full president to be chosen from InterVarsity staff. 
He became a part of InterVarsity as a student at Harvard University and served with InterVarsity or an affiliated ministry since 1994, starting student ministries at Harvard and Boston University and also helping to establish an evangelical student movement in Mongolia. And in terms of being at, at, at um, on InterVarsity, he's done everything except sweep the floors in terms of his career progression there. Most recently, his last assignment was Vice President for Missions and Director of InterVarsity's Urban Urbana Student Missions Conference. He's the author of two books, um, Pursuing God's Call and Losing Face, Finding Grace. He currently serves as the North American Regional Director of the Lusane Movement. He has a BA in economics from Harvard University and holds an MA in global leadership from Fuller Theological Seminary, but this is the best thing. He grew up in Chicagoland and is a lifelong Cubs fan. That's the big, come on, you ought to give him a round of applause for that. You know the Cubs are gonna whip the Brewers this year. Tom and his wife Nancy and, their, and two daughters are here with us. Won't you give him a round of applause, a warm greeting. I am a Cubs fan, and I noticed that you didn't say anything about being a Bears fan here. Is that not a good thing to say here? <laughs> well, um, first, on behalf of University, I do want to say a big thank you for your partnership as a church, as High Point Church. Thank you so much for your support of University staff, and especially your love for the UW campus and for UW students. Thank you for your partnership in the gospel. Um, I also want to start by introducing my family to you, so I love to embarrass them since they're here. So can, can, can you all stand up and just so people can see you? All right. Uh, in case you can't locate them, I, I, you know, on the big screen we'll show you their pictures too. Um, my wife Nancy and I uh, last month celebrated our 18th anniversary, so 18 years now of marriage. And uh, there's my, my daughter, Abby, on the right, she's 12, and my uh, younger daughter, Livy, there uh, on the left, she's 10. And so I uh, hope after service, go up to them and embarrass them. They'd love that. So talk to them. Well, um, this morning, uh, I thought I'd kick things off by uh, sharing one of the highlights of my life, and that is running the Boston Marathon. Are there any marathoners here? Anyone? Okay, we didn't really have any. Oh, okay, we got one. Okay, we got some here. Well, um, if, you, if you're ever thinking about running a marathon, uh, I want you to know it always sounds like a good idea in the beginning, okay? Um, it's something you can tell your buddies and impress them. It, it gets you in good shape. Uh, so you work hard at it. You train, you, you get up early uh, in the cold Boston winters, and you orient your life around this mission of running a marathon. And then the race day comes. And for me, the first 15 miles was actually great. I mean, uh, I think I ran so well because of the adrenaline. There's all these runners alongside me, you know, encouraging me, calling out my name, you know, fans out on, on the lines. It's calling out your name and saying, go, go, go. And I thought, man, it's a piece of cake. I can do this. And then around mile 20, I hit what many call the wall. Okay, the wall. Uh, if you've ever run a marathon, this is the part where any form of suffering you've had in your life before is much better than continuing the race, okay? Uh, it's in Boston particularly bad because at this time of the race, there are four consecutive hills. And they have a very endearing term for that last hill. They call it Heartbreak Hill, 
Okay? Now for me, I called it Prayer Hill because I was praying. You know, I was like, Lord Jesus, help me. Uh, why am I running this marathon anyways? I cried out. Does my running now even matter in the long run? I began to reevaluate my mission and its worthiness. Now, as Madisonians, I believe we're also running a race. Every day we run another mile. We uh, make decisions that will help us accomplish our mission. Whether that mission is to get our dream life, get our dream job, our dream marriage, or our dream kids. But at some point, we all hit the wall. We begin to ask God, does this race that I'm running even matter in the long run? Why am I getting out of bed early every morning to study or to pursue this career? Why am I working at Epic or at the Capitol or at the local Starbucks? Why am I at home with the kids? For what purpose? Has anyone asked those questions before? In this morning's passage, we see a person who also hits the wall. Uh, he's forced to reevaluate the way he's running in life. He's currently in the middle of his career, working in middle management. His mission thus far in life has been the simple American dream to have a suburban home, 2.5 cars, and 2.5 kids. That's who we will look at today. So let's look together at the scriptures. Um, we're going to read together uh, from the NRSV. Let's see. Oh, there we go. The NRSV, uh, verses 1 to 2. Can we read this in unison together? Okay. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be a manager any longer. Great, so we have two characters in this passage, right? We have a rich landowner and a business manager whose job it was to oversee the landowner's property. Apparently, the manager wasn't doing a very good job, right? He was living it up on his master's money, maybe making bad decisions. And so what happens to the property, does it say? He squandered it, right? He made bad investments, perhaps. So the landowner calls him in, gives him one week's notice to clean out his desk, and asks him to surrender the books. The manager hits a wall. Let's look together at verses 3 to 4. Can we read this together as well? Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking this position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I decided what to do so that when I'm dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their home. What's his problem here now? What's his problem? He realizes how dependent he is on the master and the job, and now time is running out, right? He needs to figure out a way to put a roof over his head. And so he comes up with a brilliant solution. The solution is to make friends quickly. Make friends so that after he's fired, these people will take care of him. And this is his new mission in life, and he's got to work hard at this. And so how does he do this? What's his strategy? Well, the manager's strategy, verses 5 to 7, is this. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 
He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, and how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it eighty. There are three practical strategies he uses here. The first is he uses his current position as manager to make friends. The second is he maximizes the little time he has, it's his time, to make friends. And the third is he gives away money that belongs to the master to make friends. So his position, his time, and his money to make friends. And we're talking about a lot of money here. Actually, if you look at the text here, it says 100 jugs of olive oil. 100 jugs would be about 850 gallons, okay? And Google tells me that this is about $40,000, okay? It's about $40,000. The manager gives 50 jugs or 50% off. And the wheat here is discounted how much? What's the discount? 20%, right? Yeah, 20% off. This is lots of money to be giving away, but he doesn't care. Why? It's not his money, right? He knows the money's not his, and it won't be there much longer. And so, how does his boss react? How does his boss react? His master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted truly. For the children of this age, in the NIV it says, people of this world, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are children of light or people of God's kingdom. Now, wait a second here, right? We got to pause here. Jesus, the master commends the manager? The master commends the manager? I mean, how is this possible? Didn't the manager just swindle tens of thousands of dollars from the master during his last day of appointment? Is Jesus advocating dishonesty here? While money is not the issue here, shrewdness is the issue. The master wanted the manager to be shrewd, but he was doing a poor job, right? That is, until he's about to be fired. The master might not like it, but he is impressed. I mean, I picture him saying, you know, I I hate to give it to you, but that was pretty good. (laughs) What commendable shrewdness, he says. Can you turn to your neighbor now and just say those words? Say, commendable shrewdness. Okay, turn to your neighbor. Commendable shrewdness. Right? Jesus then challenges us with the second half of this verse here. He's saying that commendable shrewdness is found more in who? People of this world than it is found in the people of God's kingdom. It's convicting. We see similar stories of this commendable shrewdness in today's world's economy. Uh, I spent several years in the Bay Area also working as an HR director in Silicon Valley. I laid off hundreds of people from their jobs, gave them one week's notice. And the amazing thing I noticed is what happens to people when they know they won't have their job much longer. They start thinking about how they'll be taken care of. They start networking and calling their friends at other companies. They start posting their resume on LinkedIn or Monster.com and... They they secretly go to interviews during their lunch breaks. They go to the doctor and the dentist who use up all their health care benefits. They do some dishonest things, too. They they steal information from their company network while they have access to it. They they keep company laptops. They take free pens from work and, you know, package it. They make international phone calls from their desks. They're busier, shrewder, and work harder than ever before. 
And Jesus says, these people are onto something here. Jesus says, we can learn from the people of this world. Shrewdness. People of this world are setting an example for people of this kingdom, for God's kingdom. In the world's economy, people network, they make friends for their own gain. How might we network and make friends for the kingdom of God? In the world's economy, they use their position to be served by others, to be served by more people. How might we use our position to serve others, to serve more people? The people of this world use their money for their own enjoyment. What might it look like for us to use money for others' enjoyment? In the world's economy, they use wealth and power for social good. How might we use wealth and power for social and eternal good? I believe we can learn from the people of this world. One of the most powerful images of that for me are these two individuals in this world, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. You know who they are, right? This snapshot was taken a few years ago. The two of them created a $600 billion challenge. They decided to ask some of their billionaire friends to donate money to give to make it $600 billion of money, of wealth, to be given away to impact the world for social good. Warren Buffett gave away, is giving away most of the money he has because they both realize that this money won't last very long for them. And they want to use it and invest it for good. What would it look like for us to use this framework in our decision-making? How can we be shrewd managers of what God has given to us? Let's move on uh, to verse 9 here. We get to the climax of Jesus' teaching. This is his exhortation, the mission Jesus calls us to. Verse 9, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Dishonest wealth. Dishonest wealth. What is that, like dirty money? What is that? Making friends is so important, it doesn't matter how you get the money, just get the money. The NIV translates this phrase here, use worldly wealth to gain friends. Dishonest wealth is wealth that lies about its nature to provide significance or purpose. Dishonest wealth is wealth that's temporary or worldly because it can't provide anything beyond this lifetime. I mean, Jesus says it here. He says, when it is gone, it's going to be gone. So the thing we learn about wealth here is that, number one, it's only around for a short time. Number two, it's plentiful for us to use in the time being. What we learn is how to use resources now to make good for the long run, for eternity, like the manager. And Jesus suggests that a worthwhile investment is making friends who may welcome you into eternal homes. Now, Jesus here, when he's talking about homes, he's not talking about tough-built homes, homes that last forever, you know, uh, destruction-proof homes. He's talking about friends who will join you in heaven, our eternal home together, eternal dwellings together. The only worthwhile investment in life's marathon is making eternal friends, loving friends into the kingdom of God, 
Now I want to ask you this morning, is that your mission in life right now, to make eternal friends? Are you utilizing everything you have toward this mission of making eternal friends? Was that your mission when you first moved into your home, when you started working at Epcot or the uh, Epic or the government? Or when you first started working at that local Starbucks? Was that your mission coming to college? If we want to respond yes to making eternal friends, the question we first need to ask then is, what forms of dishonest wealth do we have? What are the forms of dishonest wealth we have for making eternal friends? And one I want to suggest to you this morning is our relationships and our networks. Our relationships and networks. For some of you, the wealth that God has given you is to be a student right now. Do we have some students here this morning? Okay, good. We have a good, we have a good number of students here. Just being a UW student or a college student in the U.S. puts you in the top 5% of the most wealthiest people in the world. It's a position that will eventually end as well. It's temporary, right? Now, in the world's economy, you're investing those tens of thousands of dollars in tuition so that you can get ahead in life to, for personal gain, right? But in God's kingdom economy, as children of light, I believe that God has called us to invest those tens of thousands of intuition to make eternal friends on campus. To make eternal friends. Don't tell your parents that's why you're spending the money. That's why you're there. You're going to have the opportunity to influence people who will go on to influence society, who, to welcome international students or entire nations into eternal homes. In your four years there, you have the opportunity to make deeper friendships than you probably will in the next 14 years of your life. University students at Washington University recently um, asked this question, how to make eternal friends. They looked at their networks, and they wanted to make friends with this group on campus called the Free Thinker Society. This is the group on the left is these group of Christian students, and the Free Thinker Society is the atheist club on campus. Okay. And so one day they took a risk. These Christian students went, they knocked on the doors of this atheist club meeting. They were meeting together. Knocked on the doors, came in and said, hi, we're the Christian... We're Christian people on campus. And uh, we were wondering, would you like to do a service project together in inner city St. Louis? And the uh, free thinkers said, sure, sounds like a good idea. And so together, they spent about a week together serving in the inner city on a project together and got to know each other and became friends. What was even more amazing is a few weeks later, the Free Thinkers Society, the group of them, they decided to walk down the halls and they went to the Christian group meeting, knocked on the doors during a Bible study, and said, hi, remember us? Would you mind us joining you for Bible study? They became friends. They made eternal friends. Now, for some of you who are older, uh, the unique relationships that God has blessed you with are relationships in the marketplace, or the clinic you work at, or your neighborhood, or maybe it's with your network of soccer parents. These relationships are also dishonest wealth. They're temporary. In the world's economy, a management position offers power, status, even income for the worker to pay for the luxuries of this world. But in God's kingdom economy, those management positions offer the opportunity to make eternal friends, to build relationships with people that no one else in the sanctuary has access to, whether it be policymakers or project managers, hospital volunteers or hospital chiefs. There are things that you can do with your relationships that I can't do. I can't talk to that lonely coworker in your office, but you can. 
I can't talk to the Hindu family that walks every day in your neighborhood, but you can. I can't talk to or go to your your daughter's soccer coach or the soccer parents and say, hey, come check out High Point Church. But you can. Invest in those relationships instead of squandering them. So often I see Christians wasting these opportunities, spending every safe moment with that safe someone talking about the same safe subjects. I see this especially on Monday mornings. I don't know if you've seen this phenomenon on Monday mornings. We say to each other at work, hey, how's it going? Good. Oh, you? Good. Yeah, how was your weekend? Oh, it was good. Your weekend? Yeah, it was good. Right? Is that Monday morning? Right? I mean, what would it look like for us instead on a Monday morning to say, how's your weekend? Good. And they ask you, how was your weekend? It was great. We heard about at church the purpose of life. What do you think is the purpose of life? Try, try that on a Monday morning, okay? <laughs> Let's give up our small ambitions. What would it look like if we dreamed bigger dreams like the children of this age, only it being kingdom dreams? Money and assets is another form of dishonest wealth, right? Our, our stuff, our possessions. But Jesus says children of light are not living like the shrewd manager. Today, Americans are the wealthiest Christians in the history of the world. But the American uh, average tithing rate is only 2%. It's only 2%. It's 2% tithe is lower than the 3.3% given during the Great Depression. Sadly, for most children of light, instead of a mission of using money to make eternal friends, we're on a mission of acquiring money. Acquiring money. Growing up, um, I learned this, uh, this lesson or this mission of acquiring things at a very young age, playing this game called Monopoly. Okay, any Monopoly lovers here? Okay, yeah. So, so I played it a lot with my brother, and I remember there's a strategy in Monopoly that I loved, and that strategy is acquire any property you can as much as you can. Right, you know that strategy? That's how you win, right? You acquire property, acquire, acquire. And I loved winning. I loved winning, and every time I beat my brother, the part of the game that I would hate the most is that immediately after I won, he would just wipe the table. He would just wipe that board. <laughs> just right after, right after I won, he'd wipe that board and start putting everything back in the box. Done, right? No time to savor the victory, right? <laughs> he just put it right back into the box. What will help us in being shrewd with our money and our possessions is to recognize that everything goes back in the box. Everything. My pastor friend, John Ortberg in California, he said, Tom, remember, it all goes back in the box, everything. Our red hotels and green homes, our boardwalk properties and our $500 bills, they all go back in the box. Our Madison home, our 2.5 cars, our tablets and gadgets, they all go back in the box. Our clothes, our paychecks, they all go back in the box. We need to use this worldly wealth that God has given us before it goes back in the box. JP was a friend of mine in college. He was a a fellow student who understood this mission. Some people would call him crazy with his money. He was poor. He didn't have much, but he always took me out. He took me out for meals. He bought me gifts. He paid for my church retreats. I mean, he was generous. And his philosophy was this. He said, Tom, it won't last long, Tom. It, It will go back in the box. Keep spending it on others. God will give you more. 
Every time God gave him some, he knew it wouldn't last, and so he'd spend it on others. Like the shrewd manager. Then as a young adult, a bit older, uh, a family called the Wong family, uh, I got to know I got to know them a few times, and Mrs. Wong came up to me one day, and she hands me a $25,000 check. She says, Tom, this is for you. I want to invest this in you because I believe that you're going to make lots of college friends with this investment. She wanted to, she knew that God would, gave her the money and it wouldn't last long. And she wanted to make an investment to make eternal friends. Both Mrs. Wong and JP understood 1 Timothy 6-7, which says, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Now, this morning, I want to suggest an easy first step for us, a practical step for us to make eternal friends with our resources. And that practical step is to give away free stuff, to give away free stuff. Our one principle I learned about human nature is people love free stuff, right? Especially Madisonians, right? Free t-shirts, free samples, free food, you name it, people love free stuff. Now, if you've ever been to the farmer's market here or Costco, you know what I'm talking about, right? Free samples. If you've ever been to job fairs or, or maybe student club fairs on campus, you'll see people filling up their bags with all sorts of free stuff, free pens, free pads of paper. You know, it doesn't matter. They just, they just stuff it in there, right? People love free stuff. Worldly credit card companies, how do they entice you? Free stuff. Free airline miles, free gas, you name it. We can do the same. Invest our money in free gifts for our friends in school, for our coworkers, our friends in the neighborhood. While I was working in the Bay Area at Hewlett Packard, I noticed this phenomenon that people love free stuff. Really interesting. So I, I noticed this and I began to think, what will people love to receive for free here in the office? And so every week I gave away free Krispy Kreme donuts. Okay, I bring in boxes of free Krispy Kreme donuts for everyone in the office. And then I started, and that went well, so I started advertising raffle tickets for free movie tickets. So I gave away free movie tickets. And then I started giving away free candy. And I, re I began to have the most popular desk on the floor. It's great, you know. And it would eventually lead to spiritual conversations around my desk. And it would eventually lead to friendships with people who didn't know Jesus. Today, my wife Nancy and I, we have an eternal friends budget. Call it an eternal friends budget. It's set aside about $100 a month. It's not an offering or tithe, but it's about $100 a month. And we, we think together, how can, wh who can we bless? How can we use this $100 to make eternal friends? And it's a fun exercise we can go through. My brother does the same. I remember once, as he was thinking about this, he bought an air conditioner for a coworker. He even bought a used car for a widow. I remember thinking, wow, you bought a car for someone. He bought a laptop for his pastor. I mean, what would it look like if you bought a laptop for your pastor? Can I hear an amen, pastors? <laughs> I want to try out this hypothesis that um, people love free stuff. So we're going to try something right now that Madisonians like free stuff. I'm going to give something away. Uh, so I want to invite three people now up to the front of the stage right here. And uh, all you need to agree to is that you will agree to this mission of making eternal friends. I'm going to give you something for free. Okay? So those of you who are at the first service, you can't come up here because you know what I'm going to do. So come up to the front. Three volunteers. I'm going to give you something for free right now. Okay? Anyone? Is everyone shy? 
Okay, good, good. All right, we got, we got some. Okay, good, good. Okay. Come up here. We, got, we need three people. Okay, great. These brave souls. <laughs> okay, so I'm actually going to give you a Starbucks gift card. Okay? Now I know that some of you are like, oh, man, I should have gone up there. Uh, so these are five... Uh, wait, actually, I, I need to first talk about the conditions before I will give them to you, okay? Um, so uh, there are three conditions before you can accept this Starbucks card, okay? Three things I'd like you to agree to. And everyone here is a testimony. They hear you agreeing to it, okay? So the first is you agree that you understand that this is God's money and you're the manager, manager of it, okay? Sound good? You agree? Okay. Second is you'll use it intentionally to make eternal friends. You'll think about your relationships and you use it to make friends. Okay? Sound good? Okay. And then there's a limited time. There's an expiration on this. I know you can't see it, but it is in the month of August, you will need to use it because we don't have all time, all the time. Okay? Sound good? You agree? Yep. Okay. Here you go. Thank you. Enjoy. Thank you. Thank you. Can we give him a hand? I believe that God will do something with something as little as a Starbucks gift card to help us make eternal friends. That God will use our intentional efforts to use our relationships and our resources to make eternal friends. Doesn't this mission of making eternal friends make life just more interesting and fun? Right? This is part of following Jesus. Jesus says that in God's kingdom economy, I am a commendable manager when I fully utilize the resources that God's given. When I invest my time, my networks, and my money to make eternal friends. I'm a commendable manager when I utilize not just 10%, but 100% of my resources to impact communities around me, friends, people around me in a profound, eternal way. What would that look like for us today? Would you do an accounting of your own life as you go home today? I want to conclude with a movie clip we'll get to see. And this movie clip is of Schindler's List. Uh, Schindler's List is a story, a true story, of Oskar Schindler, who was a wealthy German businessman who owns a factory during the Holocaust. Uh, as he witnesses the suffering of the Jewish people, uh, he uses his relationships and money to hire Jews. And every name, every name that he hires, every name on that hire list means that that name is saved from certain death. He pours his money into this clear mission. He pours his money into saving 1,100 Jewish lives. And we're going to be looking at a scene here toward the end, which happens after Schindler's factory has been shut down. The war is over. Countless Jews have been killed. And in this scene, Schindler is surrounded by the Jews that he saved. And he's saying, Goodbye. Take a look. It's Hebrew from the Talmud. It says whoever saves one life saves the world entire.
people are alive because of you, look at them. If I made more money, <laughs> I threw away so much money. <laughs> you have no idea. If I just... will be generations because of what you did. I didn't do enough. You did so much. This car. Oh, good. What about this car? Why did I keep the car? Ten people right there. Ten people. Ten more people. This pin. Two people. This is gold. Two more people. You would have given me two for it. At least one. You would have given me one. One more. One more person. Person is that? I could have got one more person, and I didn't. And I didn't. I didn't. Those words that he shared uh, struck me. I could have gotten more out. I could have gotten more, and I didn't. If I had made more money, if I had made more money, I threw away so much money. Schindler, when he was finally called home, when his time was up, when his marathon was over, he finally came to this realization that his resources, his money, his car, his gold pin, could have been used to prevent one more person from dying, preventing one more person from experiencing suffering. He could have saved more. One day soon, we too will be called to our eternal home. Our factory will be shut down. The marathon we're running in life will end. And when that time comes, what will our accounting look like? Will we have made eternal friends with those around us, with our resources? Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for being a God who gives us abundantly, who provides all that we need. Lord, we thank you for the resources around us, whether it be our relationships that you've blessed us with, the networks we have. Lord, whether it be the jobs that we have or uh, the people we get to interact with day after day. Thank you, Lord, for the abundance of riches you've given to us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be wise stewards of those things. Lord, we desperately want to live our lives who are concerned about your kingdom investing all of our resources to make eternal friends. And so, Lord, today as we seek you and want to say yes to this invitation, help us to plant our next steps. 
Give us in our minds an image of that person, that friend around the corner or that friend at work or that friend in our school that you're inviting us to reach out to, to use the time we have, to use the resources we have to bless and to make friends. And so, Lord, guide our steps as we leave here this morning. We thank you again for the abundance of your love in our lives, which we desperately want to share with the world around us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.